Uh, if you have Bibles this morning, go ahead and make your way to the book of James. Book of James, chapter 5. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles under your seat, uh, it's going to be page 1013. Otherwise, it's toward the very end of your Bible. Uh, next week, we're actually going to kick off a six-week series on the topic of marriage. We're going to do, we're going to do a topical series on the, the topic of marriage for uh, the whole month of August and the first Sunday of September. And here's a little bit about where that's coming from. Uh, it's really struck me lately how important it is that Christians be known by what we're for and not just what we're against. And I think an area where that's really critical in our cultural moment and will be for the foreseeable future is that we as Christians want to be defined by what we're for when it comes to marriage and not just what we're against. So the huge failure would be if we just drew moral lines, you know, and talked about heterosexuality versus homosexuality and didn't actually talk about what has God actually designed and created marriage to be about. And, and are we actually pursuing that or are we, just, are we just content to have a low bar and say, well, as long as it meets like this, these parameters, then we're good. So we're going to spend six weeks, uh, six weeks talking about that. Uh, then, in the rest, for the rest of September and through the fall, we're going to jump into a series going through the book of Ephesians. So we'll make our way through all six chapters of the book of Ephesians. That'll actually take us all the way up to Advent, which, crazy enough, is like closer than it seems at times. Um, so that's where we'll be uh, as a church over the coming weeks. Uh, but today we're just doing the second of two weeks, just a short couple weeks on the topic of prayer. And last week, if you were here, uh, Evan Curry, uh, he's a church planning resident with the Liberty Network, he was here, and he looked at Colossians chapter 1 about what you can pray when there's really no urgent or pressing request. What do we pray about if there's no urgent or pressing request in life? And the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Colossian Christians in that chapter, it's a prayer of gratitude to God. It's thanking God for what he's already done, and that's something that we can do all the time, urgent request or not. We can always thank God for what he's done, and we can pray that ourselves, that we ourselves and others would grasp that more deeply, would come to understand that more fully, would cling to that, would be strengthened in that. So I don't know what that was like for you last week. I was personally challenged a lot by what Evan shared and from Colossians 1. Uh, Evan's, Evan's words there uh, encouraged me to really set aside intentional time to pray that way. Because I don't know if this is true for you or if you'll resonate with this at all. But for me, I don't remember a time in my adult life where there haven't been multiple pressing, urgent requests. Where I haven't been overwhelmed by the number of pressing, urgent requests, either in my own life or in the lives of those in my immediate vicinity. A few years ago, uh, I remember sitting in a a group of six or seven folks uh, and we were sharing prayer requests. And it came around to one of the particular guys in this group. And when it came time for him to share his prayer requests, he said something like this. He said, I'm good. I'm good. Jesus is meeting all of my needs. And he said that. And something, I didn't know what it was in that moment, but something about that just didn't settle well with me. It's like, what is it about that statement? There's nothing inherently wrong with that statement. What is it about that statement that I just don't, like. As I've had a chance to, to reflect on that, I mean, this has been a couple years now, four or five years now, I get what he was going for, I think. 
in the best light, what he meant by saying that was that he was content. That he had this healthy perspective. You know, he knew that he was, the, uh, that people in that room, people in the world, had harder things going on in their lives, their life. He was not facing difficult circumstances personally that overwhelmed him in that moment. There was no immediate crisis. And he was able to, to rest in that, to enjoy that, and to thank God for the good gifts of that. Jesus is meeting all my needs. Now, all of that is right and good. We're actually commanded to be people who rejoice in gratitude to God in all circumstances. But think about this for a second. This, upon reflection, is what bothered me about that. If I'm unable to think of a single way to ask for prayer for myself, isn't that because I've either become ignorant to or callous to the work of God in my life? Might that be because I've become either ignorant or calloused to the work of God in my life? You know, you say something like, Jesus is meeting all of my needs. Isn't Jesus always meeting all of my needs? But when did that ever come to mean that he's not also doing deep and transformative work in my life? That, you know, I, I, hope, I would hope someone could say, Jesus is meeting all my needs, but that never means that I'm done fighting sin or does that mean that I'm done struggling or, or done doubting? Does that mean that I'm in, at perfect peace in every relationship in my life? Does that mean that I've stopped longing for things that have gone so wrong in the world to be right? I hope not. I hope not. See, Jesus meeting our needs is meant to be not the finish line to our prayers, but actually the starting gate to our prayers. Now, all of us have said or or done something exactly like that, if not exactly said those words. And it's because we've all had times in our lives that we've become ignorant to or callous to what God's been doing in our life. But prayer, by the very essence of of what it is, is going to call us to wake up. It's going to call us to be alert. And it's going to call us to pay attention to the work that God is doing in our lives. Because ultimately, that's, that's really what prayer is. Prayer is active engagement in our relationship with God in all circumstances. It's leaning into our dependence. It's what I sometimes call active dependence. You know, we're always dependent on God whether we acknowledge it or not. Prayer is one way that we get to actually lean into that and actively demonstrate that we're dependent on God. It's communication with Him. It's, a, it's, it's embodying our relationship with Him. It's living and experiencing all of life with God. And what we're going to see in our text this morning is that the community of God's people is meant to play a really central role in this. That Christians are meant to support each other in this endeavor of dependence on God by being and becoming a community of prayer. So we're in James chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18. Uh, This is James, the brother of Jesus. He writes this letter to Christians throughout Palestine and the Mediterranean. It's a fantastic letter, immensely practical Someday we'll come back as a church and do the whole thing. Uh, But for today, we'll just be in this one little section. One of the themes of the book of James is the tongue. The damage, the incredible damage that the tongue can cause. But also the incredible good that the tongue can bring. And one of the highest goods that can come from our tongue is when we use our tongue to pray. And so that's where we find ourselves in James chapter 5. You can follow along with me. I'll start in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? 
Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you invite us into relationship. We've gotten to celebrate and sing about that this morning. That though we fall short, you have still invited us to become part of your people. And you've invited us into not just this individual relationship, but this community. And as James describes that here and calls us all to pray in community with one another, I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to how we might follow you into this that we might become increasingly a community that embodies this, that we might be a people who pray for ourselves, for one another, both in times when there are urgent pressing requests and in times when we just get to thank you for the work that you've already done. Lead us in that uh, work by your Spirit in our hearts this morning through your Word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So just two two parts uh, to this passage that we'll look at this in today. We'll look at first when to pray, and then we'll look at who should pray. So first, when to pray. And there's a really kind of broad, generic answer to that question. Actually, both of these questions. When should you pray? Always. You should pray all the time. James says here, if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. So, And it makes sense. If prayer is experiencing all of life in relationship with God then there's always a reason to pray. When things are good, when we're happy, we can celebrate that with the one who actually James describes in an earlier chapter as the giver of all good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. We can celebrate with Him when things are good. On the other hand, when we're suffering, when things are terrible, we can lament that. We can plead with the God who sustains, with the God who is our Father, who's this who gives us this love of a parent to a child, cares for us, and gives us grace and compassion. So that's the broad, generic answer, as always. James actually singles out a specific instance in which to pray. Sickness. When you're sick, you should pray. You should call the elders and let them pray over you. And we'll come back to the elders' role in this in a moment. But why does James single out sickness as a time to pray? Well, for one... Sickness is consuming. It's consuming. It occupies all of your physical energy, or at least most of it. When you're sick, you're, you get physically exhausted. You, know, you just want to curl up and lay in bed all day. But, but sickness also occupies your mental energy. It occupies your emotional energy. It's hard to have a clear mind when you're sick. It's hard to have coherent thoughts when you're sick. It's hard to have good conversation. It's hard to be fully present you know, relationally. It's hard to be present and engaged with other people. So it can be really difficult to commune with God. It can be really difficult to pray. 
can be difficult to have any kind of perspective that would even lead you to pray or reach out to God in that moment. Now that gets compounded by the fact that sickness is isolating. It's isolating. It cuts you off from relationships, from community, in a moment where you desperately need it. I was one of those kids who um, got chicken pox twice. Any other unfortunate kids that got chicken pox twice? There's a couple, couple out there. First time was when I was five or six. Second time was when I was in eighth grade. And getting chicken pox when you're in eighth grade is really strange. It's really strange for multiple reasons. Um, but for one, I was old enough to be home by myself. Both my parents were, were working. My sister, who's a couple years younger than me, and all my friends, they were in school. So I was home by myself, and so I had this, this week where for like eight to ten hours a day, I was at home by myself. It was the first time that was ever true for me in my life. And I realized in that moment how much I actually valued human interaction. Because, you know, we, we, I, I'm an introvert. I like isolation, but I like isolation when I choose isolation. I, you know, if I'm going away for a week and I'm getting away from people, I like that. When it's forced on me, not so much. Not so much. Sickness like that is isolating. And that's even more the case in the first century when James writes this letter, before advancements that we have in modern medicine. Sickness didn't just mean being isolated in that culture, in that context. It often meant being ostracized. Think about lepers in Scripture and what we read about lepers, even in Jesus' ministry. They're ostracized people. They're quarantined. They're deemed untouchable. They're deemed unlovable They're cut off from community. So you're consumed by sickness. It's compounded by the fact that you're isolated by it. It's this moment where you both desperately need community and you're least likely to get it. And so James here says, when you're sick, that's a time for the community to pray. When you're sick, let people know and let other people come. Let other people take responsibility to come and to pray. Another reason James singles out sickness here, and this is the one that's going to make us the most uncomfortable, sickness can be the result of sin. It can be a consequence of sin. So stay with me. Hopefully that will make more sense in a moment. Most people uh, in our culture recognize that there's a, a connection between the physical and the spiritual realms of life. So even apart from a Christian worldview, a lot of healthcare organizations, healthcare professionals, talk about holistic health. They don't just want to care about the physical body. They want to care about the mind. They want to care about the spirit or the soul or whatever terminology they would use there. If there's a connection on the healing side of that, as our culture is finding, wouldn't it also make sense that there might be a connection on the cause side of that? And in verse 15 here, James says that as you pray for a sick person, if they have committed sins, they'll be forgiven. And he's making this connection with the need that someone has for their sins to be forgiven, with the physical suffering, the physical sickness that they're experiencing in that moment. But there's a critical word in that, in that phrase, and it's the word if. If. If they have committed sins, they will be forgiven. So there's really two errors that we can make when it comes to this. On the one hand, we can assume that sickness or physical suffering is always the result of sin. Okay, that's actually the error that Job's friends made in the book of Job in the Old Testament. I know most of you, many of you are probably familiar with Job and his story. God allows him to endure a huge amount of physical suffering in his life as a trial. And his friends show up 
And actually, for the first week or so, they're great friends. They sit there with him, and they don't say a word, and they just lament and mourn with him. But then about a week in, they become terrible friends, and they take on this role of a combination of like detective, judge, jury, and executioner, and they try to, they try to tell Job, okay, Job, clearly you've done something wrong. You've sinned here. That's the reason that all this stuff is happening. What is it? Let's figure it out. Fast forward to the New Testament. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, they encounter a man who's been born blind. And the disciples in that instance make the same mistake that Job's friends did. They ask Jesus, who sinned? This guy or his parents? Like, is his blindness the consequence of his own sin or is that something his parents did and God's paying them back for that? And Jesus says, nope, you're not thinking about that the right way. This has actually been done so that the glory and the power of God might be displayed when I heal this man in just a few moments. So physical ailments, sickness, suffering, they're not always the result of sin. But we can actually make the opposite error too. And I actually think that in our day, Christians have learned from these bad examples of Job's friends and the disciples in places like John chapter 9, and we want to stay so far away from that that we've concluded that sickness and physical suffering are never the result of sin, which I think is just as dangerous an error. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is talking about the importance of the Lord's Supper, something that we value here uh, at Liberty, something we celebrate every week. The Corinthians, that, that had all, all kinds of issues in the Corinthian church, some specifically about the Lord's Supper, so they were doing some crazy things when it came to coming to the Lord's table. They were making it an individual meal. They were forcing certain people to wait until like the wealthy had gone first through the line and eaten. Um, some people were getting drunk on communion. Um, Some people were coming to the table without really considering what it is they were doing. That they were actually looking at the the, the reason that we come to this table every week is because we sinned and our sin needed to be paid for. And so some people come to the table, were coming to the table in Corinth, not considering that. And Paul said they're drinking condemnation on themselves. And he says there, that's why those errors, those sins related to the Lord's Supper, that's why some of you are sick. That's why some of you are weak. That's why some of you have died. Okay, that, that makes us uncomfortable a little bit. People died for not taking the Lord's Supper appropriately in Corinth in the first century. So according to Paul, there's this, there can be this very drastic connection between sin and sickness. Now, I'm not going to attempt to offer you like a, like a foolproof diagnostic tool for how you can tell like when you're sick, is that because of sin or not? You know, like the 50-point checklist. Like, did you read your Bible today? No. Well, then that's why you're sick. We, we, won't, we won't get into any kind of specific tool like that. But I think we need to see that sometimes there's a connection between sin and sickness, sin and physical suffering. And that means that prayer is actually the perfect response to sickness. Okay, why? Because we pray to a God who doesn't just care about the spiritual realm, doesn't just care about the physical realm. He cares about both the spiritual and the physical realms. And verse 15 there says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the word James uses there in the original language for save is vague. It could mean either spiritual salvation, like the forgiveness of sins. It could also mean physical healing. And some scholars argue for one and some scholars argue for the other. I think James left it vague intentionally. Because from the context, it seems that he's trying to make the point 
that God is the God of both the spiritual salvation and physical healing. And because sometimes sickness is the direct result of sin, we pray to the God who is able to save in all senses of the word, spiritually and physically. So when do we pray? We pray always, but especially when we're sick, especially when we're suffering physically. Second, let's talk about who should pray. That's when we should pray. Who should pray? Again, broad answer for this. Everyone. Everyone should pray. James says, everybody should pray. Uh, When you're suffering, pray. When you're cheerful, sing praise. But then he talks about two specific types of praying that should be happening among the people of God, among the community of God's people. First, he says, Elders should pray for the people of the church. You hear us occasionally talk about elders here at Liberty Church. Um, Elders are servant leaders of local expressions of the body of Christ. Servant leaders of local churches. And James says, when you're sick, call those people. Call those people so that they can come and they can pray over you. They can anoint you with oil. Just a quick kind of side note about anointing with oil. It's not like Christian magic or superstition. Sometimes kind of gets put into that category. Um, Oil has actually been used for medicinal purposes throughout history, and much more so before some of our advances in modern medicine. Oil also has really deep meaning for the people of God. It was used in sacrificial offerings. Out of the first fruits of of what God provided, people would bring oil to the altar and sacrifice it to God. It was a time when they would plead with God to continue to provide for them, to show mercy to them, to give care to them. So again, is this a, is this a physical thing or is it a spiritual thing? I think it's both. It's both. And more than anything, like James says, anointing someone in the name of the Lord, that points to God as the source of healing, the source of saving. So it's not that oil has like magic properties in and of itself, but what it does is point to the one who does the one who does save, the one who does heal. Now, prayer is this really undervalued aspect of a job description of an elder in Jesus' church. And yet, it's a centerpiece of what elders are called to do. In fact, when we see in places like Acts chapter 6, the distinction drawn between deacons and elders in the local church The main reason that this new office is created, this office of deacon, is so that the elders can focus on two things. And one of them is the ministry of the word. Teaching, proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That's one. What's the other one? Prayer. Prayer. This is something that that we pursue uh, as elders of Liberty Church. Something we really believe is true and something we want to spend a lot of time doing is praying. One of the things that really was encouraging to me from day one of getting connected to the Liberty Church Network was that when I would go, began going to elder meetings, a lot of an elder meeting is taken up by prayer. You'd stop between agenda items on lists and pray for the people involved in that. Pray for the leaders. Pray for people who you're trying to care for. Pray for people who are in crisis. Prayer is central to what we're pursuing as elders. And actually, when someone's ordained as an elder in one of the Liberty Churches, They affirm 13 vows of the kind of care and ministry that they're going to pursue among the people that God has called them to. The ninth of those 13 vows says this. Do you covenant to do your best to see that members of this flock are helped in times of need? 
And do you covenant to pray for this flock regularly, boldly, and persistently, particularly when they are sick? Where does that come from? That comes right from James chapter 5. It comes right from these verses that we just read this morning. And it's because prayer is this tangible demonstration of love and care for people in these vulnerable and isolated and, and overwhelmed conditions that the elders are called to pray. But prayer is not an activity that's restricted to elders. James immediately turns around and talks about the other type of praying that should be happening in the community of God's people. And that's that Christians should pray for each other. Christians are meant to pray for one another. Verse 16 was probably the the most well-known of the verses in, in this passage that we read. And it says this, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now I think even more then that possibility that like sickness might be the result of sin, that makes us uncomfortable. I think this is actually the most uncomfortable thing that James says in James chapter 5. And that's because he tells us that Christians are meant to know and to be known among the community of God's people. And not just to know and be known like in a few details about someone's life, like this person works there, and this is the name of their kids, and this is what they like to do for fun. That's all great. We should know people at that level James actually says we're meant to know and be known at the level of our sins. Right? That's, that's what it would take, that's what it would mean to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another that we might be healed. So let's just be honest about that. That's uncomfortable. That might be downright terrifying, depending on where you're at right now. Because we would rather, by default, we would rather only be known for our successes for our strengths, right? Think about what you put on a resume or something like that. You don't put your failures in life. You don't put the things you're bad at on there. You put the things that you're good at. And we'd rather talk about sin. We all know, you know, as Christians, we all know that that sin is something that we have to confess. We'd rather talk about sin, though, as something that just was part of our past. We get a lot more uncomfortable talking about sin as something that's part of our present day, present tense reality. I'm about halfway through a memoir by an author named Frederick Beekner. Anybody familiar with Frederick Beekner? I'm about halfway through a memoir of his called Telling Secrets, and I really appreciated some of his opening words in that book. And they have everything to do with this idea from James chapter 5. So Frederick Beekner says this. He says, I've come to believe that by and large, the human family all has the same secrets. And they tell what is perhaps the central paradox of our condition. That what we hunger for, perhaps more than anything else, is to be known in our full humanness. And yet, that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. It's important to tell, at least from time to time, the secret of who we truly and fully are. Because otherwise, we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are. And little by little come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth in the hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. He goes on to say, it also makes it easier for other people to tell us a secret or two of their own. And exchanges like that have a lot to do with what being a family is all about and what being human is all about. Okay, that is spot on. That is spot on. More than anything, we want to be known. 
And yet, more than anything, we fear being known. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. If anyone has a foundation to navigate that paradox and the difficulty of that, it's Christians. It's Christians. We fear being known in community. Why? Because we're filled with shame about the ugly parts of our lives. And yet, it's the ugly parts of our lives that have driven us to Jesus and driven us to the community of his people in the first place. And yet, somehow along the way, we get the idea that, that like, that's not supposed to be the case anymore once we're here. And we shoot ourselves in the foot when we do that. We shoot ourselves in the foot and we actually become disingenuous to who we really are when we forget that that's why we ended up here in the first place. The church that I was on staff at before coming here to Plant Liberty Church hosted something like 30 AA meetings a week. Uh, AA is Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're not familiar with that. It's a 12-step uh, recovery ministry. And one of the things that I really appreciate about groups like AA and other recovery ministries like it is that when you show up, when someone shows up to an AA meeting, they come there fully aware of the fact that they need help. They come fully aware of the fact that they have failed miserably on their own. That's the whole point. Like, no one comes to an AA meeting and says, I'm good. Like, no, you're here, so clearly you're not good. And there's no, there's no pretense about that. So if a core truth of the gospel is that we can't, right, that we fail miserably on our own, left to ourselves, why is it that we show up in a community of God's people, there's this pull to pretend like we don't need help, like, we can, like we've got it, like we're good. If you're uh, an in-covenant member uh, with Liberty, let me just address you specifically for, for just a moment. Because when we covenant with one another in community like this, this is the kind of commitment that we're making to each other. It's the thing that James is talking about here, to, to confess sin to one another, to be known and to know at the level, of course of other things too, but at the level of our sin, so that we might pray for one another. You know, not that other people would just know the, the highly edited versions of ourselves that we like to project publicly, but that they would know us in our full humanness, like Frederick Buechner said. So the question for us is, will we pursue that? Will we pursue that together? I think the answer is yes. I see it happening in our church. Will we continue to pursue it and grow in the way we pursue that? It doesn't mean you have to stand up here and publicly broadcast the darkest and ugliest parts of your life to everybody. But nor does it mean that you can reserve sin confession for like your professional counseling times or for that one friend that you grew up with that now lives on the other side of the country. You know, James here assumes, as he writes this, he's talking about a local expression of the body of Christ. This is happening among Christians that live and work and play in the same place, that see each other in their day-to-day lives. So he wants those kind of relationships to develop among the people that have bound together in covenant of a local church. So as we, as we see this in Scripture, let's be a community of people that increasingly embodies this. And our prayers for one another, let's have those be increasingly fueled by the knowledge of our full humanness of one another, and not these well-meaning, yet what I would say is community-killing statements like, Jesus is meeting all of my needs. So let's just bring all this together as we close. 
Just after that quote that I read earlier, Frederick Buechner says these words. He says, I suspect that it is by entering that deep place inside us where our secrets are kept that we come perhaps closer than we do anywhere else to the one, and he capitalizes the O in one, meaning God. We come closer than we do to, uh, do anywhere else to the one who, whether we realize it or not, is of all our secrets the most telling and the most precious we have to tell. And I think what he's saying there is that in our human condition, what we need is to be healed. That's what James is saying here, too. Often that includes physical healing. It always includes spiritual healing. You know, we've been designed by God as the, the pinnacle of his good creation. And yet, that's been marred by our sin. It's been broken. It's been fractured. We're enslaved to sin. And what James argues for here is that a community of prayer is one of God's primary means of bringing about that kind of healing that we so desperately long for and need. In our dependence, in our vulnerability, we confess our sins to one another, we pray for one another, and in that we're driven closer and closer to the heart of God where he heals us. James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And we often translate that in our minds to hear it say something like this, if you're good enough, your prayers will work. You ever, have you ever translated that line to, to, to mean something like that or heard it even taught that way, perhaps? If you're good enough, your prayers will be powerful. They'll work. A righteous man is powerful and effective. Okay? But the great secret, quote-unquote, it's not really a secret, the great secret of the gospel, who makes us righteous? Not us. It's not us. And we've got this example here of Elijah, and rather than build him up by highlighting how he was this amazing prophet of God and did all these great things, what does James emphasize here? He was a man with a nature just like ours. A sin nature, a human nature, but it was in his dependence that he prayed, and God answered him, and God worked powerfully. It's because God, through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus, makes us righteous. That's the secret of the message of the gospel. And because that's true, that same God is pleased to apply his power to our prayers, to bring this healing, to save the one who is sick, to forgive sin. So as we come this morning, in just a few moments, to the Lord's table, let's come as those who have already been exposed, as those who cannot, in our own strength, heal ourselves and save ourselves. We have come to believe in Jesus. If you have, we have come to this table when we come exactly because we, we acknowledge that that is true. And if we're willing to be known and exposed like that, then may we also be willing to be known in our confession of sin and our praying for one another that we might be healed. So come to this table because you can't. But come to this table because Jesus can and because he did. And because in doing so, he's invited you, drawn you into a community of his people where you might experience his grace. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the one who rescues us when we cannot. You are the one who heals and meets us where we're at in our desperate longing and need to be healed. You call us to be a community of prayer where we confess our sins to one another. 
He calls to be a community of prayer where we pray in all circumstances, but especially for those who are sick, who are suffering physically. We pray, God, that we would see the healing that comes by being known, by having our brothers and sisters who themselves recognize their own weakness and need for you pray for us and that we might pray for them. And God, may you make us a community of people that isn't afraid to to be real and honest about those things. May we never forget from where we've come. Not Not that you don't give us freedom from it, but may we never forget so that we don't change gears and try to pretend like our lives are all put together because of our own strength and power when we're only here in the first place because of our inability. And nothing shows that more clearly to us than when we get to come to this table and when we get to see that it costs your body and your blood to heal and to redeem and to buy us back from what we could not do ourselves. And so we pray that as we come, that there would be just a freedom lifted off the shoulders of men and women in this room, that even coming to this table would be a step out of darkness and into light and being known. May coming to this table be a step in being known for people in this room this morning. And may, may you equip us to respond well to one another when we do come, when we do offer up those dark places of our lives, when we do pray for one another and confess to one another that we might be healed. Meet with us by your spirit as we come this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen.